Yeah, well, Miller, not all of us knocked up our girlfriend. Uh, that's a phrase that hung in the air. Um, it was a locker room, Milton High School. My basketball team, a guy named Scott said it. Now, I don't remember what I said that led him to respond in that particular way. What I do remember is the oh snap, that just happened kind of muffled laughter from the other teammates in the locker room. That's one of those moments um, I found myself reeling from shame. Now, I'd been dealing with shame for a little bit at that point. I was a senior. Milton High School, I'd, um, I, was on, I was a varsity athlete for three years. I uh, I'd run for student, govern, student, uh, student, student buddy president. I didn't win, you know, but you put yourself out there. Um, and uh, I'd started a club um, because, get this, I started a club, a Christian club, uh, because it was basically another option other than FCA because... FCA was where all the fake Christians who partied on the weekends and who then went to church but weren't really serious about God, and that's where they went. And so we, we created this separate club of the people who were serious about God. Yes, the irony is not lost on me. <clears throat> Still. You see, it was on that, uh, actually it was on the, this very day, 28 years ago, I didn't realize this until this morning, this very day, October 20th, 1991, that I got a phone call from Becky that said, we're pregnant. And um, shame, like I had never known it before, came cascading into my world. I mean, it covered the dashboard of my life. It was the shame of returning from winter break with a ring on my finger. You know, like you came back from winter break senior year, you know? It was like, it was like the, the ring of Sauron, like thrown in the fire. Like it felt like it just glowed as I walked through the halls. And, and then there was just the, kind of the hushed conversations, the like, is that the one? In the hallways and classrooms. And, and then there was the awkward questions. You know, there's, every once in a while someone's like, so would you like to be married? But that didn't happen. Mostly it was just awkward silence in most of the context that I was a part of for weeks and weeks and eventually turned into months, eventually some form of normalcy. You see, I had sinned. I'd sinned, or of course, as my non-Christian friends at the time would have said, like, you screwed up, dude. Um, but I'd been found out, and it was visible for the whole world to see. There was no way to hide it. I'd claimed to be spiritual and moral, and I'd been shown to be carnal and weak. I wasn't just guilty of getting my girlfriend pregnant. You see, I was the kind of person who gets his girlfriend pregnant. And that's actually the difference, isn't it? That's actually the significant difference between guilt and shame. You see, guilt, I mean, guilt says you did something wrong, right? You did something wrong. Shame said says you are something wrong. It wasn't just the kid who got his girlfriend pregnant. I was the one, the kind of person who would get his girlfriend pregnant. And, and that's actually what stung the most. That's what lingered in the hallways for me. We see this morning's passage is a staggering amount of shame going on. 
And it's not what most of us would think about when we're thinking about the crucifixion passages. So this morning, we're going to look at the passage in three headings. First, how Jesus experiences shame. How did Jesus experience shame? And then how we try to overcome or to cover our own shame. How we try to cover our own shame. And lastly, how do we become free from shame? So how Jesus experienced shame, how we try to cover our own shame, and then lastly, how can we be free from shame? How did Jesus experience shame? Well, one thing that's interesting, if you think about how the crucifixion passages are, are often preached, we, we focus a lot, we spend a lot of time thinking about and maybe emphasizing the physical pain aspects, right? You think about, you know, the Passion of the Christ was... I mean, it was a vivid display of the reality of what that could look like on someone's body. The crucifixion as a physical experience is not unique to Jesus. I mean, on that very day, there were two others that were experiencing the exact same thing that Jesus was. Maybe not the scourging, but the, the crucifixion nonetheless. And of course, there were hundreds that had experienced it before. and There would be hundreds, maybe even thousands, that would experience it again through the Roman Empire. You see, one of the risks as we think about and as we try and take in the crucifixion scenes from the Gospels is, is an overemphasis on the physical anguish of Jesus, though it was unbelievable physical anguish. Listen, crucifixion is one of the cruelest ways of execution that's ever been devised by men, no doubt about it. Like, Roman citizens weren't ever crucified. It's that terrible. So the physical anguish is real. We don't want to make light of it. But when we focus or over-focus on the physical anguish of Jesus, oftentimes what we find ourselves is moved to pity, to maybe even to sentimentality. Like we feel bad for Jesus. Like we feel bad for the pain that Jesus went through. None of us are going to be crucified. I mean, can we all pretty much guess that that's the case? Anybody risk at risk today? No. I cannot be crucified. So, so it's over there, and so we feel maybe pity or, or distance from it. And that's not what the gospel writers intend for us. It's not how they wrote it more significantly. Because pity, sentimentality, feeling bad for Jesus will never change us. It'll, it's not powerful enough to change us. But in verse 15, we see kind of this surprising, almost shocking brevity that begins. It just says that Pilate says, and having him scourged, there's no descriptives, there's no 12-minute scene from the Passion where, where you know, the, the cat of nine tails gets pulled out and there's, there's lacerations and gets flipped over halfway through. None of that. It's just they had him scourged. Scourging is horrible, but that's all that Mark says. He doesn't go into any of the gruesome details. And then maybe most shockingly of all, you go to verse 24, and it says, matter-of-factly, and they crucified him. That's it. There's no, and they laid him down, and in one, one nail at a time, stroke after stroke, they drove the nail through skin and through, through ligament and through bone. There's none of that. It's just, it's absent. And they crucified. There's more words about how they're splitting his garments. They could have done a better job, but that's what they were trying to do. And again, this is not to diminish the reality of the physical pain that Jesus went through on our behalf. It is true, and it is severe. 
But that's not what the gospel writers point us to. That's not what they emphasize. That's not what they, and therefore, asking us to reflect and ruminate on primarily. It's not the pain of the cross, but it's the shame of the cross that Mark's pointing us to. It's that Jesus was rejected, despised, he was ridiculed, he was, he was, he was shamed mercilessly through the whole process. You can see it starts with the, the soldiers, right? It says the whole battalion, verse 16. That's like 600 or so soldiers, between 300 and 600. Just a lot of really angry Roman soldiers. We see in verse 17, it says, And they clothed him with a purple cloak. They twisted a crown of thorns, and they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! One after another. Striking him on the head with a reed. One of the other, one of the other gospels said they, they gave him a reed as like a scepter. So they're taking the scepter and they're striking him on the head. Spitting in his face, which doesn't cause injury. It's just one of the most shameful things you can possibly do to another person. And they're kneeling down in homage before him. Hail, King of the Jews. And, says, and then when they'd mocked him, like when they've all had their fun, They've kind of run out of shame to dispense upon Jesus. They had no more ways to mock him, to make fun of him. They, they, they strip him, it says, of the purple cloak, and they put his clothes back on. So shame begins with the, the mocking of Jesus with the soldiers, and then there's just there's the, there's the walk of shame, right? Because you, you carry your own beam, which is the indication that you are guilty, and you walk through the streets and everyone gets to see, yep, yep, he was sentenced, so he must be guilty, because right? if you're sentenced, you're always guilty. Walks through the city as a condemned man. And then there's the shaming of nakedness. Now, this is not in Mark's account, and it's really not in any of the gospel accounts. Um, but obviously, if you've seen any pictures, and you always see the nakedness. Now, because, you know, they're churches, etc., there's always this very tasteful loincloth that's put over Jesus. But commentators, most commentators are saying, we don't know, but the odds of Jesus actually not being fundamentally and fully naked, which to Jewish people in the Jewish culture is just, could not be more shameful. Hung up for all to see. Now, hung was painful, but, but for all to see. Would you rather be struck in the face than paraded naked in front of people? I would. a shaming nakedness, a stripping, a robbing of dignity and uncoveredness. And of course, there's the mocking sign. This is the king of the Jews. It's, it's just it's sarcasm. It's, it's a sneering at his name. And then there's the, uh, the shaming of the bystanders. Mark talks about them as though it's like people are going by. It says in verse 29, then those who pass by, those who pass by derided. Actually, the word is blasphemeo. It's blasphemed. They blasphemed him wagging their heads, which is a sign of contempt, and they said, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from this cross. Your claims are garbage. Your message is fruitless. You're being revealed to not only be false, but powerless. 
wagging their heads. And the priests joined them in verse 31. And so the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another. Because, you know, when people are talking about you, that's always the best in front of you. And they said, he saved others. He can't even save himself. Well, he says he saved others, but can he, he can't even save himself. So did he save anyone? Did he do anything? Did he accomplish anything? How did he save anyone if he can't even save himself? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from this cross, and we will see and believe. And lastly, to add insult to injury, the end of verse 32 says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So everyone, the, the very thieves who are also condemned men who at this point have no rights of any kind about anything, even they are heaping shame on Jesus. Loved ones, Jesus didn't just bear our guilt on the cross. He, he bore our shame. We're just saying, my, my sin was nailed to the cross. When you think about that, what do you think about? Do you think about the bad things you've done? Because that's, that's real. That was nailed to the cross. There's no doubt about it. But what about, what about the kind of person that you are that does those kinds of things or that did those kinds of things or that could do those kinds of things or thinks those kinds of thoughts? You see, he didn't just die for your guilt. He died for your shame. That was nailed to the cross. <laughs> That's good news. We'll get back to that. So what do we do? We all, we all feel shame. We all experience shame. There's no way around it. If you're alive and human, you may have felt some today. I was just having a conversation with someone, and I was talking about making fudge, and I was like, yeah, I have a really hard time making fudge. I kind of, like, the last three times I made it, I kind of screwed it up. And they're like, really? And I was like, are you fudge shaming me? <laughs> but, right? I mean, it's like, clearly, there's something deficient with me that I can't make fudge. But, right? We all experience it. That's a, I mean, obviously, that's very, very small. But, but we also know it in big ways. Everyone knows shame. Everyone's experienced shame. And so what do we try and do? How do we try and cover our own shame? Because that's the only option outside of Jesus. So just so you know, there's Jesus, and then there's you covering your own shame. There's no, those are the only two options. I see three primary ways in which we go about that. One is, uh, I think it's particularly exciting these days. It's got a lot of energy, and that's the, uh, the positive self-affirming talk. This is just a reboot of the, um, you know, Stuart Smalley's SNL daily affirmations, you know, because you're good enough, you're smart enough, gosh darn it, people like me. It's just a reboot, right? As I, I just, I'm trying to get really good at loving myself. It's the... Um, a pursuit of finding from within myself to generate enough positive messages that will counter some of the negative messages. It, it's, it's, a, it's a reboot of Adam and Eve sowing fig leaves, saying, naked? Who's naked? I don't, who's, I don't, who's naked? Shame, shame? What shame? I, I don't have shame. I love me. I, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty content. But let's be honest. You own a mirror? I mean, if this is the way you're going to go, do you own a mirror? 
Do you have relationships with anyone? Well, of course you do. And it doesn't hold. You, none of you are my sharpest critic. And I suspect none of us are your sharpest critic. Sharpest critic lives with you, inside you, saying some of the most horrific, terrible, what is wrong with, what kind of a person would. So how's that person going to love you in a way that frees you from shame? It doesn't work. It's a great idea. It just doesn't work. Loved ones, we cannot cover our own shame. Well, that doesn't work. There's another option, and that's to, um, to kind of amass some external accomplishments this is, and, and to have them be our boast, right? They become our counter-shame boast. I, I've done some stuff. It's, it's, it's funny if you, um, you know, body shaming. You guys familiar with body shaming? Or hashtag body shaming. Um, which is, you know, going on right now. People feeling body shamed because of social media, et cetera. So movie stars in particular experience this a ton, which I can't imagine. I wouldn't want that life to say, I mean, wow. Um, but what's fascinating is to see how, how, what the responses are, how you try and fight this off. And so and there's a, a couple of actresses in particular who, who are very famous and have done extremely well, and they're fighting off of it as like, whatever, I'm super successful, so I don't care if I have extra curves or whatever, check out my resume, basically, is the thing, and who are you? That's, that's the response. It's, it's you got to look at my accolades, what I've accomplished. And, and you see, that's actually what the bystanders are trying to tempt Jesus with, right? They're saying, you, you want to free yourself from shame, Jesus? Come down. If you'll, if you'll accomplish something, if you'll show us, I don't know, like a miracle, then we'll what? We'll see and believe. Talk about a taunt. We'll see and believe. Which is not true, of course, but... But if you can show us something, if you can accomplish something significant enough, like coming down from a cross, well then, well then we'll remove your shame. That's what, um, that's kind of how 17-year-old Matt tried to deal with the shame from getting pregnant. I mean, I just made some really strong, I'm going to accomplish some stuff. I'm going to show everybody, just you wait, one day they'll see. And that's how I try to cover my shame. And, and here's the crazy thing about this. I think the first one has very limited access and very limited usability. This one works great for a long time. I mean, it doesn't actually work, right? Because it's just like putting you on a treadmill that goes nowhere until you're exhausted, and then you fail again and realize you need a different kind of treadmill to accomplish a different kind of thing. So it doesn't actually work, but it promises to work in a way that has power. It's one of the things um, Becky and I watch The Voice. Don't judge. Don't, don't voice shame. Um, but every time uh, on every season... There's someone that starts sharing elements of like that they were bullied growing up or that, that they were abused growing up or that they were abandoned by a, fa by, by a parent or, or by both parents. And, and these are usually I mean, they're tragic stories. They're genuinely tragic, tragic stories. But what I find to be the, most great, the greatest tragedy is, is that after they've shared this, they usually say something like this. And I kid you not, every season there's two or three people that say something exactly, almost exactly like this. They say, but if I got a chair to turn it would tell me that none of those things define me. And I'm always like, no. And then, and then they come up on stage, and I'm like, oh, man, please turn a chair. I mean, like, this is, right? I mean, the angst of, like, if no chair turns, did you see what's at stake for this person? It feels extreme, but we do that. 
If I could overcome this thing that, if I can have an accomplishment of some sort, some relational accomplishment, some, some success, then, then, then that, that shame gets pushed down. It's not, that's palpable. Loved ones, we cannot cover our own shame. We cannot cover our own shame. When those two don't work, the only option we're left with is to make other people's shame worse than our own shame. And there's a whole lot of that going on right now. Whether it's in our own mind, because we don't even have to say it to make it work, or it's with words to other people, or online, which is the best way. It's the blaming, right? It's, it's the woman ate the fruit. Her shame, her shame is worse, right? I mean, she actually took the fruit. From the beginning, it's the comparative, comparative shaming, right? Or comparative shame. It's, it's the idea of um, I drive a really, really terrible car because I have some economic shame pieces that are connected to the fact that I don't make enough money. And so people who drive really expensive cars who squander their money buying a car, like I'm going to hold them in shame. That's the worst way to live. Or you drive a really, really nice car, and you're not sure about the shame of like, like should I be spending this much money on a car? But then you see someone with a really terrible car, and you go like, well, they worked hard. I mean, if they were committed to it, if, they had, if they'd gone to college and not community college, you know, a little intellectual shame on top of it always helps. Well, then, then I'm, I'm really okay. I, I can compare my way out of my shame, or at least out of the current moment of my shame. And of course, there's retaliatory shame. This is the online vitriol when, <laughs> when I shame you according to my values and you shame me back according to yours. It's like two people having conversation speaking different languages. It's, frankly, it's, it's the irony. I, I mean, it's, let's just use a current example, right? Let's just use the Ukraine thing, right? This is not a political statement of any way, so don't worry. Um, there's two different kinds of things that have gone on with that thing, right? There's like someone bribed to get their son to get a special thing, right? Talk about generalities. Um, and then, or there's the someone tried to get them to help us get dirt on them. So one is either some kind of a treasonous thing and the other one's some kind of a bribing treasonous thing. And the way the shame is going about is like that shame's worth, worse, right? Is that, that's the, that's the bad one. This is a certain kind of, this is the bad kind of trees. If they're true, I mean, I'm just assuming, let's just say they're both true. It doesn't matter. Right? It's just, let me just, let's compare. This is the bad trees because I'm going to, according to my values, this is really terrible. And so what we did, maybe did, that's, that's less. And we do this all the time. All the time. See, one of the joys of being a pastor is I get to think about stuff for a whole week, so I get to see just how broken stuff is internally to let you know it's really broken in you too. So just so you know, just start paying attention. You'll realize I do this all the time. You got a bunch of family here together today. Try this this afternoon. Just see what happens. <laughs> Loved ones, friends, family, we cannot cover our own shame. Neither the, shame, neither the shame for the things that we have done, neither the shame for the things that have been done to us. We cannot cover our own shame. And we try so hard. 
Our shame must be covered by another. It has to be. It's the only way to be free. Because the antidote to shame is acceptance. I don't mean some like paltry acceptance. It's it's being deeply loved. It's being it's belonging. It's being adopted. Those are the Bible words, okay? Those are the spirit, those are the those are the theological words. You want to know what acceptance means? It means being grafted into your family, where you can never be taken out again. That's the antidote to shame, which is why you can't give it to yourself. You can't get it from yourself. It must come from the outside. So how can we be free from shame? Well, we have to see Jesus. We have to see Jesus, the perfect one, bearing shame for us. I want to take you to 1 Peter 2, verse 22 and 24, through 24. Verse 22 says, He committed no sin. Talking about Jesus, actually talking about this very reality. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. This is Peter's way of saying, Jesus was the perfect one. In in, in shame language, he's worthy of honor and glory. He's the perfect one. No deceit was found in his mouth. Everything he did and said was true, always. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Though he had the right to respond with what is true, Though he had the right to rebuke, he did not. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Though we hear from him, I could have called legions of angels. He did not. But he, what? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is being shamed by everyone. Though he is perfect, and what does he do? He entrusts himself. He he continued entrusting himself. Not one time, over and over and over. Every step up the hill, every nail strike, every word of blasphemy, continued entrusting him to the one who judges justly. This is, I think this is fascinating, but think about it. There's two things going on here. The one who judges justly is the Father, right? The Lord. The Lord is the one who's going to judge justly. And what Jesus is doing on the cross, which we're going to see in verse 24, is he's saying, I am here that justice may be done. I'm hanging here, experiencing and receiving the shame that justice may be done for them through me. See, justice had to be done. There is one who judges justly. And if anyone is going to escape shame, if anyone is going to escape guilt, someone has to be dealt with, and it must be justice. And so Jesus is entrusting himself to the one who is going to judge justly, which means that Jesus is going to receive justice so that we, when we stand before the Father, receive justice that was paid upon him. And secondly, he entrusts himself to one who judges justly, that those who would not 
receive the justice that was executed on him, justice would remain. As C.S. Lewis says, there's two ways. You look at the Lord and you see there say, I, your, thy will be done, or the Lord looks it up at us and says, well, thy will be done. And justice will be, thy will be done. If you try to cover your own shame, thy will be done. It won't work, and you will die in your shame. But there's another way. There's another way. Trusted that justice would be done. Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, um, it says, For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It's just scorning the shame. And literally, like, he's talking at shame, saying, like, you have no more say here. You have no more power here. When you think about sin and death being overcome by Jesus' death and resurrection, it is the guilt and the shame that has been put to death. Which is why we see in verse 24 of, of, second, of 1 Peter, He himself bore our sins in his body, both our guilt and our shame, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We might die to sin and live to righteousness. Like, that's living. Something has to die. But that we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He's quoting Isaiah 53 there. He's coming from Isaiah 53. Things were done to Jesus and happened to Jesus that we would experience healing, renewal. And you need to be healed of your shame. Present tense, future tense, past tense. Jesus removes our shame, and all of us are ashamed of certain things. And, and it makes us shameful in the eyes of God. It's what shows up in Genesis 3, which shows up in Ezekiel 16. And because of our sin, the Bible says we have no glory. We're left with just shame. If that's all we got, sin, then Romans 3, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You got no glory. You got no honor. You, you must be given glory and honor. Jesus bore the consequence of our shame, the rejection, isolation, berating, and ultimately the death, his death in our place. And now those who are in Christ, Romans uh, 10 says, that everyone who believes in him, like this, this is as wide of a door as I can show you. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's the wide open gate of the gospel. Like, you want to come in? You want to be free from shame? You won't be put to shame. Not here. No one's deriding here. Someone was already derided for you. No one's going to mock you here. Someone was already mocked for you. You could, you could, everyone who comes in will not be put to shame. He sustained in his death the utter shame that we would feel for our objective sin. Because there is a jeering, there is a mocking, there is a shaming that belongs to 
your sin. Now, again, we talk about this, talk about it a lot as our team, but like, like shame, shame is not a good motivator. It's just not, right? It doesn't sustain, doesn't move anywhere. Doesn't mean that shame is not real. Like if, if I'm standing here and someone in the back pushes over some old lady, knocks her to the ground, and suddenly turns around and realizes we're all looking at them, they're going to feel what? Shame. Is it wrong that they're feeling shame? No, they pushed over an old lady. Like, that's real. That's... What should happen to that person? Well, probably some deriding, maybe. Some mocking. How could you? That's what the world would do, right? That's what would belong. It would, it would shame them into the ground, hoping to create a different kind of behavior. But that would be fitting, maybe. Without Jesus, it's what belongs. The reviling that should have been hurled at us for the things that we have done was hurled at him instead. And yet there's this, <laughs> there's this amazing, sovereign twist of irony, even in the shameful, deriding, mocking, statements that are made to Jesus. Did you catch it when we read? On the lips of everyone who denies or reviles him, they're saying true things. He is the king of the Jews. They're insulting and trying and shaming with it, but he is the king of the Jews. He is worthy to be hailed as a king to be clothed with robes of, of purple and scarlet and beauty. He's worthy to wear a crown of power. He's worthy to be knelt down, bowed down to. Every knee will bow to him. He is the one who, in the very moment that the priests are saying, I'm sorry, that the bystanders are saying, you said you're going to destroy the temple? That he's destroying the temple system in a way that invites those all people from that day on to come to God through him. It's happening. They're telling the truth as they mock him. As the priests say, you're the Christ. He is the Christ. King of Israel. He is the King of Israel. He is the one who is saving people not by coming down from the cross, but by remaining on the cross in that very moment. And Jesus endures because he knows the real story. He knows the end of the story. He knows the joy that's set before him and the justice that's being executed. He knew that exaltation comes before, that, that exaltation follows humiliation. And so what is this what is this seeing Jesus as our shame bearer who finishes that work on the cross? How does it free us? What does it look like when we're free? We're, well, first of all, it frees us to own our own shame before God. To come to him and say, I did that. And because I did that, it must be true that I'm the kind of person who would do that. Now, now, many of us, many of us are willing to be honest with God with the thing that we did. 
few of us are willing to come to him and in genuine confession and repentance say, yeah, and I'm apparently the kind of person that does that. How big is God's grace? Is it just for the things you did? Or is it the fact that, my goodness, you would say that kind of thing to that person? Wow. Yep. His grace is that sufficient. See, we don't just need to be forgiven for what we did. We need to be transformed, healed, and renewed from the propensity in me and in you to do the things that we did. That's not sins. That's sin. God's wanting us to be free. It also frees us not just to just to own our own shame before God and with God. It, it frees us to confess it to one another. James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Isn't that a strange word? Healed? Can we just see that in First Peter? By his wounds we are healed. When you're free of shame, you feel healed. You don't just feel forgiven. You don't just feel clear. It's like you feel healed, like you're well, like your soul is well. Nothing changes us more, Larry Crabb says, than looking bad in the presence of love, which in my opinion is what the gospel is, right? Looking bad all the way through in the presence of love. And that's what it means when we come and we take and we bring to light in the presence of someone else the reality of not just what we did, but that this is true about us, could be true about us. I mean, with courageous vulnerability, we tr with trusted people that love us, and it heals us of our shame. Like, here's the thing. Like, in a room this size, I don't know how many, but there's a bunch of you sitting around here with secrets, with shame that you haven't talked about with other people. They've told one person, and they're not around, and they don't, nobody knows you. And, you, and God wants to heal you of that stuff. And he heals you by having you bring it to him because you get to look at Jesus as you come to, as you come to the Father. But then he also heals you. He says, this is why we need one another. You need to be able to bring it to the light with someone else who loves you who's going to be able to say, okay, let me cover your shame. I had someone this week text me some stuff going on in their life, like had sinned and had a ton of shame surrounding it because of how it manifested itself. Like, all I kept thinking was like, some of what God's called me to in this moment is to cover their shame. Not with like, it's okay, it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. To cover it with, you are still loved. I love you. I receive you. I don't reject you. I'm not going to mock you for this. Because that's how I was treated by my Savior, and so that's what I offer to you. So confess and repent, and, and let's be courageous. Let's some of you need to take this, talk about faith-filled steps of courage. Y'all need to take a risk to confess and be freed. That you may be healed. Lastly, it frees us to endure shame from those, from those who are closest to us and those who are far away. And that way we follow Jesus' we follow Jesus's pattern, not because he's our He's our example, but because he's the one who actually empowers us to do this, and that is we don't, we don't deride in return. We don't slap back. We don't reply. We 
continue our trusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. What would that look like? How clearly would Jesus have to be in your view for that kind of shame coming at you, not fudge shame, serious shame, to be able to say, you know what? In suffering, I will not counter. Subversion of turn the other cheek that Jesus talks about, right? Jesus was shamed and reviled. He was mocked. His reputation, his name, the one who is worthy of honor and glory, his name was dragged through the mud so that we may receive honor and glory. That's how the gospel works. You ever noticed what someone who is like kind of mired in shame looks like? Someone who's done something really, really bad recently or someone to whom something really, really bad has happened and they're feeling the shame of it, it's ended up not looking very differently. Look, it's shoulders slumped, right? This is kind of the, the shoulders are slumped, the eyes are to the ground, head is low. If that's what your soul is like, I want you to hear what Psalm 3 says. Many are saying to my soul, of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Does that sound familiar? There's no salvation for him in God. Listen to verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You, O Lord, are my glory and the lifter of my head. What the cross procured for you in the shame that comes upon you today, tomorrow, is that he lifts your head. He becomes your glory. I know you're not worthy of glory, but he is, and he gives it to us. And as he gives it to us, he imparts it into us in a way that starts manifesting that glory, and it's more and more beautiful. So it means to be changed by Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. And that's what you're invited into. Today he wants to lift up your head because he's your glory. He's the shield around you. He's the Savior that received all the shame that you would be free from shame and healed. That's what he has for you today. And that's what this table, this table is, is the pierced, bruised, abused Jesus who experienced also all of that shame saying, I want to invite you to a meal. I want to invite you to sit down with me and belong to me. There is no shame. There is no thing you have done. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing that's true about you because of the thing you did that can keep you from me, that can keep you from belonging to me. You've been grafted into me. That is the thing that will keep you moving through anything. None of your self-talk will work. None of your shaming of other people will ever work. It's such good news. Do you hear it today? As you come and you receive the elements, as you receive the body of Christ broken, his blood shed for you, like that's what he's declaring to you. I covered your shame. Will you receive me as such? Will you let me? Let's pray. Father, you gave us your son. And because of your great love for us, you allowed him to be subject to some of the greatest humiliation and the kind of shame that I can't even imagine, let alone from the one who is the Son of God, 
the perfect one who deserved none of it, but deserved all honor and all glory as it is today. And so you humbled yourself, and now you invite us in humble response to come and take this meal with you and to receive grace, undeserved favor, and power to become new people, that a sin would be put to death and that we would would be alive to you. That's what we long for. And so, Lord, would you do it in us by your power and by your mercy? Help us to see Jesus paying that for us, not just right now, but, but every moment where shame would speak a different message. Would you remind us of the cross? Thank you for the cross. Pray these things in the name and to the praise and glory and honor of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you belong to Jesus, this is a meal that's for you. So we invite you to come forward and to receive the body and blood of Christ as his gift to you this morning. So come forward and receive.